Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Today, we're looking at two crises facing marine ecosystems in our state. Later on, we'll hear about why so many manatees are dying in the Indian River Lagoon. But first, red tide is back. The toxic algae has spread along the coast from Charlotte and Lee counties to Pinellas, where county workers spent last week scooping hundreds of dead fish that had washed up along the shore. Hundreds of gallons of wastewater from an abandoned phosphate mine spilled into Tampa Bay earlier this year. That could be one factor in the outbreak. But Maya Burke of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program says it's not the only reason. But we can't control the weather. We can only control sort of what we do as a community in terms of the nutrient inputs that we put there. And so for us, that's always been where it's at. You know, what are the things that we can control? We can control our nutrient pollution. And we know that this year the bay took a big hit. And so we need everybody to do their part to make up for what they can. My colleague Jessica Mazaros has covered the red tide problem for years here in Tampa and in Fort Myers. I spoke with her for this update. What is red tide and why is it such a persistent problem in and around the uh, the coast in our area? Well, Karenia brevis is the red tide organism that lives in the Gulf always. You know, usually it's in what's called background concentrations. And it's even been documented in the water since like the Spanish explorers. So as far as we know, it's always been there. But it becomes a problem when the concentrations of Karenia brevis increases from background or low concentrations to medium or high. And then that is considered bloom concentrations. And uh, those are toxic. They can paralyze some animals, even make them act strange. And exposure can be fatal for marine life. And for people, it causes respiratory irritations. And then, of course, our beach days get affected when smelly dead fish line the shores. And, you know, of course, down the line, that affects our tourism. So what's happening right now that's causing this this red tide outbreak that we're seeing in in Pinellas County and, and elsewhere in our region? Well, red tide blooms started brewing in southwest Florida near Collier and Lee counties some months ago, and then they started working their way up, you know, through Sarasota, Manatee, Hillsborough, and Pinellas counties. So red tide already existed, but what happened was when it reached Tampa Bay, some scientists believe that the nutrients from 215 million gallons of wastewater dumped out of Piney Point fed the bloom um, because it didn't show up here in high concentrations. What happened was when it got here in lower concentrations, it was then fed and increased while it was here. So scientists think there might be some kind of connection from the Piney Point discharges that we saw in March and in April to this outbreak. Yes, scientists are waiting on results to confirm that the because basically they tested the algae and they they can pinpoint which nutrients uh, come from Piney Point within that algae. And so they're waiting on on those results to come in. You know, nutrients have certain signatures and so they'll be able to tell. So this particular outbreak, it kind of comes at a bad time for the tourism economy in our area because we're kind of hitting a point where. Uh, in some places, 
tourism is is starting to reach pre-pandemic levels. Uh, the beaches are packed, lots of people coming to Florida right now. So it's not really an advantageous time. So I wonder for tourists or even for locals who might be wanting to head to the to the beach, is it does that mean it's just a no-go right now because of uh, red tide? Well, it is recommended that people who have asthma or other breathing problems stay away from beaches with red tide blooms and go and stay in an air-conditioned space where the, uh, the air can be filtered. But the state is actually doing daily sampling. So beachgoers and tourists, they can actually plan ahead and see exactly where it's been found and decide for themselves if they want to go there. From what I know of, though... Um, Beaches have only been closed temporarily in Pinellas recently for beach cleanup efforts, like to pick up the dead fish. And usually red tide comes in later in the summer or early fall. So scientists are concerned that it's here a little earlier in the season. So you mentioned the fish kills and local governments are working to clean those up because obviously you don't want dead fish carcasses on on the beach. But what can you do in general to clean up these massive concentrations of red tide that are in the Gulf? Uh, honestly, Bradley, really the only thing that can be done once red tide blooms are present is clean up the fish kills, um, is monitor the water and inform the public. Um, it's really reactionary. There's no way right now to go out there and like pluck red tide blooms out of the water or anything like that. Scientists are hoping for some rain, but not too much to help break up some of it. And and if a big tropical storm or, or hurricane comes through, those can sometimes get rid of the blooms. But we're really just kind of counting on weather and time. And it's really just a waiting game and just observing it. And all we can really do is, is, get, is educate people and let them know what the current situation is. A lot of it is preventative measures. So Governor DeSantis was in St. Petersburg last week talking about this problem. What exactly is being done? Uh, Well, the governor didn't really state anything new, although he said that this current bloom is not as bad as the one from back in 2018 that lasted over a year and devastated beaches, marine life and tourism. Uh, But basically what's being done is a lot of monitoring. Like I mentioned, the state is doing daily sampling. And so people can can look that up and and decide for themselves if it's if it's okay for them to go into certain areas, certain beaches. Um, So there is a lot of, of monitoring going on, which is really all that we can do once a red tide bloom is here. What is the long-term fix or long-term fixes to prevent red tide blooms in the future? Uh, Well, red tide will always live in the Gulf, but there are ways to not feed it. For instance, you know, leaky septic tanks have been blamed. Um, Nutrient-rich lawn fertilizer uh, washes off during rainfall and then ends up in the Gulf. And the nutrients, you know, especially those that have, you know, high levels of nitrogen in the fertilizer, that all ends up in the Gulf and and feeds these blooms. And so uh, scientists, you know, recommend to, to be really conscious of, of how much fertilizer you're using when you're using it. Like they, they ask to not use it during the rainy season because it's just going to wash right off your lawns anyways. Um, and so it's not even really like helping your lawns. Um, so it's really just about being conscious and preventing these nutrients, especially now when we've had this massive dump of nutrients from Piney Point. You know, Tampa Bay's already had enough. Uh, something like like 200 tons of nitrogen ended up in Piney Point as a result of this. So it's like it's it's already spent. You know, it can't afford any more nutrients moving forward. Jessica, thank you very much. And thank you, Bradley. That was WUSF's Jessica Mazaros. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission releases a red tide report every Friday. 
High concentrations of red tide were reported in Pinellas County, in the Gulf of Mexico at Madeira Beach, and along Bay Pines and Abercrombie Park on Long Bayou. You can find the full report and more coverage of red tide at WUSFnews.org. This is Florida Matters. Our show continues in just a moment. You're listening to Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. The manatee is Florida's state marine mammal, and it's a species that's also under serious threat. 800 manatees have died just this year, most in the Indian River Lagoon on the state's east coast. Max Chesnes is an environmental reporter at Treasure Coast Newspapers, and for years, he's reported on why manatees are so endangered. As we're talking about the issues that are facing uh, manatees here in Florida, let's start by describing the Indian River Lagoon, since that's where a lot of the die-off is happening. Just describe that environment and why why it's such a um, popular ground for uh, for manatees. Absolutely. The Indian River Lagoon is one of the most biodiverse estuaries in North America. It's 156 miles. It stretches from Martin County to the south, um, all the way up to Volusia County up in the north. It's a home to many species, manatees among them, marine mammals, including dolphins, fish species. And it's really unique in Florida. Um, It's an inland body of water that stretches hundreds of miles, 156 miles, as I said. And in decades past, it was a, a lush forest of seagrass. But over the decades, as uh, human-caused pollution, uh, including nutrient-rich stormwater runoff and pollution from sewage and septic, have entered the lagoon, these lush beds of seagrass have over time turned into these moonscapes where on a clear day you might see a sandy bottom as opposed to a large forest where fish and other species can thrive. Uh, can find an adequate soup food source and can ultimately navigate throughout the lagoon as uh, as a waterway. And the seagrasses, this is the primary food source for, for manatees, correct? Yes, manatees can consume up to 200 pounds of seagrass per day. Uh, these are animals that are, are mobile. You know, as the mascot of Florida, everyone looks to manatees as an incredible species. But yes, they, they consume quite a bit of seagrass per day. And when you have stretches of the lagoon that are missing that food supply, and particularly in in winter months when manatees are gathering at warm water sites, warm water discharges from power plants, and you lack that seagrass, you can cause a ripple effect where these manatees are all together looking for food and uh, can't find it. So yes, they do thrive on that seagrass, and it is their main source of food supply. What's causing the, the seagrass to die out? As I said, decades of fertilizer runoff, which includes nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, have entered the lagoon. And these nutrients can ultimately fuel algal blooms. Uh, Algal blooms feed on these nutrients, uh, causing them to ignite on the surface of the water. And when that happens, these algal blooms blanket the surface of the water and act as a veil that covers aquatic wildlife, aquatic vegetation like seagrass on the seafloor. 
Um, just like the plants in your backyard, seagrass requires oxygen and sunlight to thrive. And when these algal blooms cover the surface, it robs them and chokes them of that adequate supply of oxygen and sunlight. So over the years, as this continues to happen, more and more seagrass is lost, converting it into this, this barren moonscape. And many people, clean water conservationists, uh, biologists, point to the seagrass loss as the leading primary factor of the manatee deaths in the lagoon this year. Uh, they point to these decades of stormwater runoff, fertilizer runoff, leading to the choking and dying of seagrass, which is the primary food source for manatees. And it's a chain effect from there. So has the the issues with runoff and algae, has it has it been bad in the, in the last year or so? Or is it just kind of the culmination of, of years of this issue that's caused this mass dying off in manatees that we've seen uh, over the last year? Many biologists believe that this is um, a tipping point, um, that, it's, that it's the combination of years and years of polluted runoff entering the waterway, creating an impaired system that when something like, you know, a moderate winter gathers manatees together, it can then exacerbate the problem. So, while there have been years past, you know, in 2011, there was a ground tide event in the lagoon that killed off thousands of acres of seagrass here. And seagrass takes a while to grow back. It takes a while for it to, to bounce back and become luscious once again. And when you have these compounding events, these winters where manatees gather together and there's a lack of food supply, it can compound the problem to the point where what we're seeing this year, which is 800 manatee deaths so far, the majority of those have been in the Indian River Lagoon, uh, 300 of which have occurred in Brevard County, which is a popular warm water site for these manatees, you start to see this problem compound and build. And on top of that, there are there are other environmental issues at play. This year, COVID-19 uh, halted a lot of the state biologist research and necropsy efforts to determine the fact that these manatees we're dying from something other than natural causes. So necropsies are, are autopsies for animals. And um, COVID-19 essentially has limited a lot of state biologists from researching these animals and the cause of death. But the ones that they have found have shown severe sign, signs of emaciation, of starvation, uh, and lots of tissue loss. So early on when this was beginning in January, February... The manatees they were able to recover in necropsy showed those signs of emaciation and starvation. Um, that trend continued through March um, when there were 432 manatees that had died through March, uh, most of which in Brevard County in the northern stretch of the Indian River Lagoon. And proceeding that, federal investigators with NOAA, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, came together and agreed that this was called an unusual mortality event. And... And that designation is important for several reasons, one being that it frees up a lot of federal resources between the national government and the state to provide resources to determine not only the cause of what's happening, but prevent more manatees from dying. Um, it's also important because it creates a distinction that what's occurring with these manatees is not a natural outcome from the systems like the Indian River Lagoon, that this is something unusual that's happening and evidence currently points to the fact that this is uh, a human-caused famine. So this is what's happening in the in the Indian River Lagoon on the east coast of Florida. 
What about on our side of the state, over here in the Tampa Bay region? Of course, we have manatees that live uh, live on 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 our waters here. Are the issues that we that we have in the Gulf with red tie and algal blooms are are those having an impact on on the manatees that live on this side of the state? Sure. So anytime you have uh, a fraction of the population that suffers from a die off, there are residual effects throughout the population, and, and red tide is a known killer for manatees. If you look back at 2013, when the previous record of 830 manatees died in one year, a large contributor to those deaths were in fact red tide. I believe 200 or so manatees died as as a result of of red tide related illnesses. Um, And red tide this year, in fact, has killed 17 manatees, the majority of those in Lee County and Charlotte County. And while that is a staggering number, 17 manatees have died from red tide, that doesn't quite compare to what we're seeing on the East Coast, which is hundreds and hundreds of manatees that are starving, that are lacking an adequate food supply. Uh, but it is a problem. It's an ongoing problem. We know red tide affects mammals of all sorts, manatees especially. And it's an issue that scientists, state biologists are actively looking into. You know, Last week, you had the governor meet with state biologists um, to discuss red tide effects, specifically on the West Coast of Florida. And it's something that a lot of biologists are pointing to as an indicator that it's something worth monitoring as these manatees are already vulnerable and that they can be greeted with the toxins found in red tide algae and can exacerbate it even further. As you said, manatees are already vulnerable. And one of the vulnerabilities that manatees face are boat collisions. And that's also something that's contributed to to the death toll, certainly not in the numbers due to uh, algae or seagrass die off, but that's also another uh, issue that that these creatures face. Sure. This year we've seen 59 boat strikes uh, that have caused manatees to die. And in the past, you know, there have been large movements that uh, raise awareness to boat strikes as as a major cause for manatee deaths. We've seen as a result of those movements and those, uh, those campaigns to inform the public of the human impacts of boat strikes signs and waterways across Florida warning of manatees in the area, no wake zones that were uh, that were risen in the waterways. Um, and you see similar campaigns like that now uh, with habitat degradation. You have conservationists pointing to water quality as a major source of uh, the problem. And that you can see uh, there, there are similar techniques here uh, raising that awareness. Uh, the, the boater campaign was it was particularly successful in, in pointing to the fact that boats were part of the problem. This year, obviously, you know, they are compounding the problem along with red tide. There are a confluence of environmental factors that are taking place here. Um, and while it is part of the story, the larger issue, uh, the focus tends to be on water quality this year. And the reason for that being that we've seen barren areas of, of the lagoon, of parts of Florida as far south as you know, Biscayne Bay that have lost seagrass over the years, and that continues to be the main talking point here. So it seems that there, you know, the long-term issue is getting these nutrients out of the water that will hopefully allow seagrass to grow back and the manatees have their food source. But is there anything in the short term that's happening with the state or with federal wildlife officials to protect the manatees that, that are still living and, and making sure that they stay healthy for, for the short term? Uh, in 2017, there was a key decision. Um, the U.S. Department of Interior downlisted West Indian manatees from endangered to a threatened species. 
And this was a bittersweet decision. Uh, it, it proved that decades of conservation effort, efforts were paying off, um, that there was evidence to show that conservation efforts were working, and that manatees could be downlisted on the Federal Endangered Species Act. Um, as manatees began dying off this year, many conservationists returned to that 2017 decision and said that this could potentially be harmful for the species, that it could cause uh, a lack of funding, a streamline of funding from protecting these animals. Um, so many people, especially on the East Coast, have returned to that 2017 decision and said it's time to relist manatees as endangered under the Federal Endangered Species Act. You had U.S. Rep. Vern Buchanan on the West Coast uh, offer a similar plea last week to uh, federal wildlife officials stating that they need to reinstate manatees on this to uh, ensure future protection. Uh, beyond that, uh, this year, legislators and the state legislator offered $8 million dollars uh, for manatee habitat restoration. You know, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission hasn't stated exactly how they plan to use that money, but that is a larger increase of, of funding that will go towards manatee conservation in the future. Um, and many point to habitat restoration and finding natural warm water sites to relocate manatees in the winter months. That's a more safer area with more food supply to go around. Those are two main things in the short term that are happening to address this ongoing die-off. And then in the long term, you know, many people say that there needs to be an increased enforcement on water quality standards, particularly in the lagoon and other parts of Florida, these impaired waterways, to ensure that habitat has a chance to regrow after decades of stormwater runoff and pollution runoff. Um, beyond that, several groups of conservation organizations here on the Treasure Coast urged Governor DeSantis to declare a state of emergency to address the failing Indian River Lagoon. And beyond a symbolic stance from these groups, they wanted an acknowledgement that this was an impaired waterway, right? You would ask for a, a state of emergency for an impaired city following uh, a natural disaster or a hurricane, and they wanted a similar recognition from the state for the lagoon over here. Federal, uh, state wildlife officials, like the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, came back and said that it's not necessary, that they're actively working with federal investigators and state partners to address the cause and that a state of emergency wouldn't be effective. Conservation groups uh, took that a step further and said, now is the time to act, um, that we've seen so much runoff and pollution over the, the past few years that um, any further could hinder manatee populations for years to come. This could be the start of a long ongoing trend of manatee die-offs. And then obviously beyond that, it is enforcing water quality standards, enforcing the amount of, of fertilizer you're using to, to clean your lawn or to, to fertilize your lawn. And uh, you know, nutrients like, like nitrogen and phosphorus that are found in fertilizers uh, can cause uh, these blooms, once they enter the water, to to raise up, to, to flare up and to choke out seagrass. So you've been reporting on the issues facing manatees for a while. What, where is your journalism taking you right now? What are you, what, what, what questions are you trying to answer that, that you haven't been able to answer so far about, about this issue? I think a large question right now is the overall effect it'll have on ecotourism throughout the state. Uh, there was a boat captain I spoke with, uh, a few weeks ago, who was taking a private charter. Uh, he had a group of, fi of fishermen on his boat with him. And in the midst of that trip, they found two dead manatees that they reported to the state. So this is actively playing uh, a part in the overall ecotourism aspect of Florida. 
And I really want to know what the monetary toll of that will be. Will this hinder uh, future dollars coming to the state for uh, for tourism, for appreciation for these animals? Uh, manatees draw in thousands of people per year to the state uh, to either die with the manatees, to see them in the wild. And uh, to see how this manatee die-off will play a, a part of that is something I'm genuinely considering uh, and genuinely looking into. Beyond that, I think a, a larger question is what, why now? Um, you know, we've seen decades of pollution runoff. We've seen uh, water quality issues facing the, the state for, for years. Why the tipping point now? What, what was the catalyst that sparked um, the starvation, that sparked this large, large number of, of manatees that have died? And I'm also considering uh, and actively looking into solutions to the, the warm water problem. Uh, many people have pointed to power plants as an issue uh, as manatees congregate and, uh, and gather together during the winter uh, to find warmer water. Uh, manatees tend to thrive in, in temperatures above 68 degrees. So finding solutions to that problem, finding a way that manatees can gather in these warmer water sites, natural springs in the wintertime where uh, food is more abundant and drawing them away from from unnatural systems like power plants. And even state wildlife officials have acknowledged that it's long past due to look into that issue of, of warm water congregation at an unnatural sites. And I'm really interested to see how that'll play out, um, not only in, in the coming year, but in, in the years that follow is how do we address this ongoing problem to prevent more manatees from dying. Well, Max, um, you do great work reporting on this, and that's that's why we wanted to speak to you. So, uh, thanks so much for for sharing your uh, your knowledge on this issue with us today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And if there's any other questions, just let me know. Max Chesnes is environmental reporter at Treasure Coast Newspapers. Before we wrapped up our interview, he had one more thing to say about manatees and why their survival should matter to everyone. I suppose uh, you know, it is a statewide issue. Uh, what we're seeing over here on the East Coast is indicative of the fact that Florida waterways are impaired um, and that it's time to, you know, biologists say uh, and conservationists say that it is time to focus on water quality uh, as a larger issue in the state. And, you know, manatees are known as a sentinel species, right? They are a proverbial canary in a coal mine. What happens to manatees can be an indicator for the ecological health of Florida's ecosystems, particularly marine ecosystems. And uh, many people I've spoken with said it's, it's crucial to pay attention to that because what happens to these manatees uh, this year and throughout next year is worth paying attention to. Uh, we've seen 800 manatees so far die in the state. Um, that's compared to the record-breaking year of 2013 when 830 died. And many believe that that record will soon be passed as soon as the end of this month. Um, and it could reach as high as a thousand by the end of the end of the year. So it's important, you know, these are the gentle mascots for the state. And when anything happens to those, it's time to pay attention to. That was environmental reporter Max Chesnes. And that's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening.